just going to uh, introduce Julie very simply because we have just met for the first time. We've talked on the phone a little bit. Um, I know Julie through a lot of articles, and um, uh, most recently I'm, I'm sipping on her new book, Childproof, that she may or may not talk about, but if she doesn't, we're going to share more about with you tonight. But uh, she is a part of CCEF, Christian Counseling and Education Foundation. Boom. I often mess that one up. Uh, uh, out of, uh, up in Philadelphia, very near Westminster Seminary. Um, many of us are, f- are familiar with their resources and are very indebted to the things they put together. Journal of Biblical Counseling, tons of books, tons of pamphlets, um, just a wealth of really practical gospel-centered ministry resources for us. Um, I have enjoyed hearing her on Walt Mueller's podcast. Um, she was on our local youth leader podcast. Um, she is a, uh, a counselor, um, a minister of sorts. Um, she is a, a parent um, to her, many kids, and many other kids, um, she knows the world that we are swimming in from lots of different angles, and I'm thrilled to have her here, share her heart, uh, share the things she's seeing, um, and communicate with us, and teach us, and lead us that we might serve in our churches better. So I'm just going to get out of her way um, as quick as possible. Thank you for being with us very much, and we look forward to being taught by you. Thanks. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Um, yeah, let me, let me start out by saying I really enjoy interaction, so please feel free to yell out, raise your hand, whatever, get my attention. If, if you want to comment or ask a question about something, I hate being just a talking head up here. Um, as Michael said, I, I've been a counselor for close to 20 years, and we'll pretend I just started when I was 10 years old. Um, we are uh, foster parents and adoptive parents, so my husband and I uh, were both counselors. We've had uh, kids and teens in our home probably for the last 15 years. Our, actually, our two daughters now were our foster daughters before we got married. I was a single foster parent for a year. They were a part of our wedding. Um, and so my poor husband went from being a bachelor in his 30s to an instant husband, homeowner, and father of two. Uh, the moment we got married, and then within a year, we took on two biological brothers um, who were siblings, so four kids in the first year of marriage. If you want to talk about how to add stress to the first year of your marriage, do what we did. Um, So one of the things I often say is um, there's no formula for parenting and marriage um, and raising kids, and that translates over into the counseling room as well, which you're going to hear me talk about um, because I'm a counselor. Because I speak, because I work with families and teens a lot, those four kids were toddlers, four kids under the age of five. They're now five teenagers, soon to be going to college. Um, So we've got five teens in our house. So I'm speaking both as a professional and as a parent who is living through these years right now. Um, And we've got a little eight-year-old as well. Um, So with that said, let me, I want to read... Ephesians 5 that says, Be imitators of God as beloved children, and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice. I want to focus on this idea of being imitators of Christ as dearly loved children. So one of the things I hope you hear me say this morning is I'm going to talk about this idea of a waterfall effect. Um, that every good and perfect gift flows from above, that everything we are going to be to young people or should be to young people uh, really is because we were given this source. So you have this uh, picture of being an imitator of Christ. And I don't know about you, but whenever I think of imitation, I think of uh, margin, butter versus margin. Or any of you guys ever heard of butter buds? 
So those butter buds are like completely sucked of anything good in them and you uh, flavorless almost and you sprinkle them over things. And, and then I think of the idea of uh, I can't believe it's not butter. And if any of you guys have ever had I can't believe it's not butter, you would all go, yes, yes, we can believe it's not butter. Um, nothing's as good as butter, right? So we think of the word imitation, we tend to think of something that is close to the real thing but not the real thing. And that's not what Ephesians is talking about. It's more this idea that we are a waterfall, we're this conduit of who God's character is, right? Everything good, be imitators of Christ as dearly loved children and walk a life of love. Love as I have loved you. Forgive as you have been forgiven over and over again what it looks like to live Christ's life in and through us. Now, why is that important? Because kids and teens know when we're not doing that. So, for example, um, this is one of our favorite family stories in the low home. Before we got married, I had two little girls. They were three and four, or two and three, somewhere around that age. And um, as you can imagine, pretty exhausted being an instant single parent of two kids. And one time I came home and I was in my apartment and the girls were running around me and as little girls they like to play with hair so I sat down on the carpet and they began um, playing with my hair and at the time my hair was probably twice as long. And so I thought, oh great, they're occupied, I can take a break for a minute and relax and made the fatal flaw of closing my eyes while they were working on my hair. So the little girls, they get this big box of ribbons and um, clips and shiny things and they're pulling my hair out in every which way. I look like Medusa. I had snake-like appendages coming out of every corner. I didn't care. They were happy. They were occupied. I had a chance to take a break. And my, uh, my daughter Brittany, who was four at the time, did something that she often saw me do in the morning and that was I would go into the bathroom with a brush and I would run water under it and then I would smooth her hair out, get out all the flyaway hairs and smooth it away. So she runs into the bathroom, she gets the brush, she pours water over it, she's bringing it out, dripping wet, soaking to put in my hair and her little sister follows her. And so they're having a grand old time running in and out of the bathroom, back and forth, back and forth until about the third time they went in the bathroom, a thought struck me. And that was Kimmy, who was three at the time, was too short to reach the sink. Yes, you can imagine what happened. So I jump up to my hands and knees and crawl over and look in the bathroom. And I look around the corner, and sure enough, there she is dipping the brush in the toilet. Um, later that night, I found antibacterial soap in my hair as well. So I can only hope the two were canceling each other out. But here's this great a picture of imitation, right? Was she imitating me? Well, she was attempting to. Her imitation of me was grossly off, though, and I do mean grossly off. Um, so here is this wonderful picture of what I think sometimes our imitation of Christ can look like, too, where we, we are getting the spirit, we think we're getting the spirit of the law, but we are really missing, or we're getting the letter of the law, but we're missing the spirit of the law. Here, Kimmy was getting the concept of, I get mom's hair wet and I smooth out the edges, but did I care the source of the water came from? Absolutely. It did matter where the water came from. Um, here is a picture of us as adults when we're relating to teens and youth, right? Where we think we're imitating Christ, but what comes across may be grossly off in our imitation. And what they see 
is not at all the spirit of the gospel at work in our lives or the spirit of forgiveness or love or graciousness or whatever it is that we're attempting to model. So it's a wonderful picture of how imitation of Christ does not mean I'm over here kind of building my own little waterfall trying to be like Christ. It means I am allowing his life to live in and through me in ways that transform me and change me. Now that's foundational to what we're gonna be talking about this morning to think through building bridges with kids means, and we all know they can fake, they can spot fake a mile away. Um, they know what's authentic and what's not authentic. And so what does it look like for us to be authentic in our relationships? Um, trying to think which screen I should be looking at. Have we talked with our children this week about the delights of living more than the disciplines of living? Have we inspired and guided them more than we've corrected them? Now, I don't know about you, but even in counseling, it's, it can be really painful because, especially as a counselor, parents are bringing their kids to me to fix. So it doesn't matter what sometimes the parents have done or why the kids are acting that way or they're allowed to be that way, all of a sudden, I'm supposed to fix whatever behavior is going on, right? I'm sure as youth leaders, you guys have come across this. Um, and the question is, do we take the time to really build relationship with kids in the way that we woo them to the gospel? It, we do have to speak into their lives. We do have to instruct and correct them. The question is, though, do we talk more about the correction? Or are we more reactive in our engagement with young people? Are we proactive? And that's something, again, I'll probably say ad nauseum, it's far better to be proactive in shaping the way a child or teen thinks about a subject than to be reactive and try to go back and debunk it. And as many of you guys, again, probably know in ministry context that um, it's not until kids get caught acting out or they're having problems that we try to engage with them instead of going back and being proactive that we're speaking openly about hard things like sex or sexuality or death or dying or uh, things that are cultural or technology, whatever it might be, that we're proactively informing the way a child or teen thinks about a subject rather than being reactive and waiting for a problem to occur. So why do we struggle with building bridges with kids or teens? There's lots of reasons, and I've just listed um, a couple up there, but pace of life. We are all living a fast-paced life. Uh, gone are the days where people sit outside in their rocking chairs and sit around and talk to each other. You know, it's really interesting how even architecture reflects our pace of life and our culture. There's a lot of things that have been written about how uh, Old architecture used to be about big open spaces in the front yard, wraparound porches, um, rocking chairs out front. It was inviting community out in front of homes. Now what do we do? We pull into a driveway where we open our garage door, close our garage door, go in our home. We have huge fenced-in backyards where it's private and nobody can see us, and we have our fire pits or our grill outside, out back, and we go into our little world and close ourselves in really fascinating to see how even architecture reflects cultural values. So pace of life, we're busier than ever. We, most kids are being raised by two-parent homes. 
cultural priorities. So what are the cultural values we buy into? Um, depending on where you live, it could be lots of different things, but we are buying into our kids need to be busy and active and overly engaged in sports and clubs. They have to be succeeding. Um, just recently, I've been working on a mini book about teens and suicide, and one of the things I was reading up about is uh, the culture in Silicon Valley where particularly two high schools, you guys might have heard of them, but two high schools in the last um, 10 to 15 years, I believe, just huge explosion of suicides happening and a lot of copycat suicides or suicide clusters is what they're calling them. And they're talking about this cultural priority or the pace of life where teens are more and more feeling the pressure to succeed, um, to be successful, uh, to be important whether they're feeling that from parents or whether they're feeling that from their peer group or whether they're feeling that just by uh, default of where they live. So even if I as a parent was living in Silicon Valley with my kids, they by nature are gonna feel that pressure even if I am not putting pressure on them. So if we're not proactively speaking into our teen's life about those things, it's gonna be the voice they hear the loudest that's gonna win, right? And that's part of the struggle that sometimes I'll meet with parents or families and they say, but that's not our values. We're not putting that pressure on our kids. And I'll say, yeah, but are you speaking against that pressure? Are you engaging them with that pressure? Um, so cultural priorities, what do they buy into um, and how do they deal with it? Another issue that is huge, probably with most of us in this room as well, is the issue of anxiety. Kids, um, probably one of the number one counseling issues we're dealing with now is anxiety issues in kids and adults alike. And there's, again, multiple reasons for that. Um, I'll talk about social media briefly, but I think that is one of the reasons that kids struggle, and you and I struggle, by the way. Um, so it's something to be aware of. Um, as adults, we value compliance often over dialogue or relationship. So again, I just want my kids to obey or do I really want to engage them in life and their struggles and have an active relationship with them? We look for quick fixes rather than long-term bridge building. So how do I summarize all that? We serve the wrong agenda. And again, you can probably add, if I were to poll you guys, you could probably add five or 10 maybe other reasons that we might struggle with building bridges with young people. Um, but it comes down to this simple reality that we're often serving the wrong agenda. Now, I want to say something that can be a bit controversial to people, but I think we're raising a peer-obsessed culture, a generation of peer-obsessed kids. Um, maybe that's not controversial. Some of you are nodding your head. However, I hear over and over again, this is normal. And again, I'll, I'll speak from a parental standpoint where parents are saying in, in counseling with me, but you know, they're teenagers, they're supposed to be independent, like of course they're teenagers, like being a teenager all of a sudden dismisses every bad thing or thought that they might have. Um, but there's a struggle here where we are buying into, again, a belief system that says my teenagers shouldn't want, it's, it's normal for them not to want relationship with me as a parent or as an adult, and it's perfectly normal for them to prefer their peer group. Why do we buy into that? because I think we have a skewed perspective. Again, I think we serve a wrong agenda and we're buying into cultural values that say adult relationships won't be as important as peer relationships. And what that means is 
kids are peer, uh, peer preference or they prefer peers to a degree that becomes peer obsessed. Um, and how do we define what's obsessed? That's a good question because that's where everybody's different on the spectrum, but adults are being pushed out of kids' lives. You and I are being pushed out of kids' lives. So it starts with parents, and then a child comes to youth group, or they come to you, or they come to me as a counselor, and it's hard to win a voice in their life. Why? Because there hasn't been an adult voice in their life for quite some time already. And by the time people start catching on to it, you've got really rebellious kids. And then that's be, that becomes how they're defined, as rebellious kids who won't listen to authority. When authority was lost, the influence of adults were lost years before that. So I guess part of what I want us to think about is what does it mean for us to win back adult influence, win back the influence into kids' lives? So again, on the screen, I put some, uh, I put up a, a PowerPoint of some ways that it could be problematic. So peer influence, let me backtrack for a minute. Um, I'm trying to think how, how I would talk about this. What's healthy, what's unhealthy? Well, let me backtrack to say it used to be kids would um, go to school all day, be with their peer group, maybe have sports after school, spend time with their peer group, but then they'd go home and they'd be with their parents the rest of the evening. Um, or it would be they'd try to be on the phone and this will totally date me, but I can remember the days where you had like this 12 foot long cord that you would drag into another room and close the door and try to be on the phone. So the worst problem parents would have is getting kids off the telephone at night um, or maybe on the TV, but it was uh, adults and parents influencing kids, at least in the evening and often on weekends. Now what you have is kids spend all day at school with each other, with one another. They come home, they get on social media, their laptops, Xbox, Fortnite, whatever it might be, and they're with each other from sunset to sundown and usually two to four in the morning. So it is literally peers influencing peers almost 24 hours a day on a regular basis. That's tragedy waiting to happen. Why? For these very reasons that your own peer group often lacks life experience. And we certainly should believe that 13, 14, even 17-year-old kids lack life experience to really help each other grow and to nurture maturity and wisdom in each other, right? Um, so they lack life experience. They're limited in resource and help. They often lack insight and wisdom outside their own world and their own experiences. They assume autonomy and maturity. So again, uh, media, TV, movies, there is rarely uh, a media outlet that makes an adult not look like a moron, right? So of course the teens are the smart ones and the adults are the idiots in this situation. Um, several years ago, I binge watched 13 Reasons Why. Any of you guys ever watched that? I binge watched it because I was going to be writing about it and that was probably one of the most mortifying takeaways and there was lots of hard stuff about watching 13 Reasons Why. But what really struck me was there was no adult interaction that was depicted as positive in those series. Um, one came really close with the guidance counselor but every adult was seen as inadequate or incompetent or irrelevant in those teens' lives. And it was teens 
who are deciding how to help teens, who are saving the world or not saving the world and making really tragic decisions. And that is the message that our teens get anytime they go outside of the church or anytime they go outside their home. And sadly, sometimes not in those contexts either. So it assumes autonomy and maturity. They see adults as inadequate or insignificant, um, and so it becomes pretty self-serving. And then we have, this is my truth. Now, that is a bit of a buzzword, and I'm not sure what everybody thinks and feels about my truth, but the positive element of that, the positive side of that is saying, I'm speaking out, I'm telling my story. The flip side of that is my truth sometimes means whatever I say goes. Whatever my version and my perspective is, is completely valid and it is truth. Instead of saying my truth always has to be subject to a truth, um, to God's truth, and that there is an authority on truth in our lives. And again, that would be another concern that peers, that kids are not getting these days. So then you have adult parental influence um, and again, I'm making assumption that that should be positive, right? Because we certainly have negative parental influence and negative adult influence as well. But those things, as you see listed, are we presume the best, that if we really are imitators of Christ, then we are loving. Um, it presumes a certain giving and dying to self, where we are loving people under us, we're serving them. We are an authority figure in the best respect of what authority should represent. Let me stop there for a minute. Any questions? What should there be? What can there be? Okay, what, what should there be? What can there be? Great question. So i stand up here a minute. Um, well, in, in what I would say an ideal situation, so you take, you take infants for a, a little bit. Great studies show that healthy attachments, healthy relationships and attachments form when children feel bonded to their parents, right? That makes perfect sense. That's why when a stranger walks up and talks to a toddler, talks to a parent, they back up, they cringe, they cling to mom and dad. There's something healthy about that because they know who their safe people are and who their safe people are not. Um, but the parent then models this is a safe person by engaging with them, talking with them, acting normally. And so the child is watching that being imitated, and they learn this is a safe person and a healthy person. How, so going back to peer, how does that happen? I think as adults, we need to do a better job modeling what it looks like to pick healthy people in our lives. And we do that at a young age, and our children's worlds are small, um, but then as they get bigger, at some point, adults give up influencing how those relationships are made or how those relationships are fostered, and we just let our kids pick, and we back away. So I'm not arguing my kids don't pick their friends. All my kids pick their friends, but I am actively engaged in their lives. Parents and adults and youth leaders, you guys probably have a more of an open door than a parent ever will to some degree on helping shape and influence. So kids are really indiscriminate about picking their, their friends, right? They're not interviewing them, at least internally, and saying things like, is this person good for me? Will they accept me regardless of my personal convictions and value system? Um, will they ever encourage me to do the wrong thing? They don't ask those internal questions, and maybe quite honestly, you and I don't ask enough of those questions of our friends and our relationships. So 
How does that happen when adults speak into teens' lives and kids' lives and we start shaping them and getting them, challenging them to think about, well, what does it look like to have healthy relationships? What does it look like to have somebody for you who accepts you unconditionally? Um, how do we engage well with our peers that they're for us and we're for them? What's mutuality look like in relationship where it's not self-serving? And so the best relationships do that. They're still limited. I mean, they still have only their life experiences to go on. But let's say a 15-year-old um, starts building relationships with a friend, and that friend has really solid, mature adults in their life. They have youth group leaders that they go out with regularly, that they look up to and admire for advice and input. They have parents that, though they might think they're old-fashioned, they've got a great relationship with, and they enjoy hanging out and watching football on the weekends with them. Do I want my 15-year-old to be hanging out with a child like that? We should all say, yeah, of course we do. Why? Because we can immediately see that the character and conduct of that other teenager is being shaped by positive adult influences. So... How do we do it? Why do we do it? What does it look like? I think that can really vary, but I think what we are talking about is any teen that has no loving influence, mature loving influence in their life is at risk, um, and at risk to be swept away by whatever voice is strongest in their lives, and those tend to be the voices in the media and culture. It doesn't have to be. It could be anything, but it's going to be the voice that speaks the loudest. So if you and I aren't actively engaging and winning them over in relationship, then we're missing something huge in that. Other thoughts or questions? Oh, come on, you guys are youth leaders. You've got to be more rowdy than this. Right, so let's say as a youth leader, you're, you see a group of kids, and you see one or two good kids, but they seem to be moving towards the direction of some negative influences. That is really tricky, because at what point do I, want, do I want kids to reach out to difficult kids or to kids who are struggling and love them well and draw them into the church or be an example to them? I want my own kids to be that, but never at the sacrifice of their own character and where they're at personally. And so that's a wisdom issue, right? There's not a black and white line there. But as an adult, you and I should always be engaging who's pulling who up and who's pulling who down in this situation. And when does it become unhealthy? And any time I'm witnessing a teen reaching out to somebody who's a poor influence, even if it's for good reasons, and they're not surrounded by wise influence and encouraging people in their lives, then I'm concerned. Um, I'm less concerned if my teenager has five great adults in their lives and I've got an open relationship with them and they've got a youth leader they're talking to or a counselor, whoever, and then they've got a friend that they're worried about. I'm less concerned because I know there's lots of voices pouring into their life. It's when there aren't any voices. And what I see consistently in counseling, I'm sure you guys see this too, is it can take one needy, unhealthy teen in a group who starts affecting a group of other teens. And you see this particularly with girls. So I've seen girls with eating disorders start influencing other girls with eating disorders. And it originally looked like two or three girls were reaching out to her, trying to love her well and help her. But what ended up happening is they started struggling. Um, and all of a sudden, they were struggling with eating disorders they never had before, or cutting, or things like that. 
Um, why? Because again, I think when teens and kids are left to themselves, they tend to influence each other um, in ways that don't tend to be positive. And again, that's a bit of a generalization, but that's a fair generalization too. Yeah. Yeah. Even worse, <laughs> right? Because now when the adults are the unhealthy influence, now we're putting teens really in big trouble. And I speak a lot um, to churches about um, protecting the vulnerable. So pedophiles, sex offenders, things like that in the church. So that would be one of, that's where my mind goes right away naturally. And I know that's not necessarily what you're saying, but huge dangers because now you have a power differential influencing. So peer on peer, they influence each other. Um, you know, and there can be power differentials among teens too. But when you have an adult who's grooming kids, whether it's for good or bad or evil or just immorality, whatever it might be, how much stronger is that? Because they have the weight of influence and authority over them. Um, so you and I should always be really concerned, probably 10 times more concerned when we see an adult doing that to a peer group than even peers doing that. And that's when you have to intervene, you have to speak in, you have to address it, you have to bring it to leadership and say, I'm really concerned. You know, the interesting thing I see over and over again, especially in ministries, is that when we are concerned, we're so afraid of speaking up unless we have proof. And you know what, to some degree, that, that's good. I wouldn't want somebody just going around throwing out accusations at me without any proof, but we ignore what I would say is probably intuition, not even intuition, because that sounds mystical, but we see something that is amiss. We can't always put words to it. We don't know what to do with it, but we know we're right, or we know there's something off. And the fear of just saying that, or the fear of not having something concrete and not being able to prove it means we just withhold concern. I guess one of my arguments is don't withhold concern. I can still be um, careful that I don't make accusations I don't know about, but I can be a regular voice of concern and I can say something like, you know, this relationship this leader has with these kids is concerning to me. And I just want to bring it to light. Maybe I say to the youth leader, you know what, I, I'm concerned about some of the things I'm seeing. If nothing else, I'm putting it out there so that eyes are on it. Um, and that would be true from peer to peer. That's true when I'm concerned about an adult's influence in a group's life, that the worst thing you can do is keep silent until you think you have proof. The better thing to do is to talk it out with somebody, to bring up your concerns to, again, otherwise people who are going to help you evaluate whether it should be concern or not. I don't know, did I address your question or did I get off on a tangent? <laughs> okay. All right, negative peer influence. So again, I won't read all these things to you guys, but you can see some examples. This is the stuff that tends to happen when peers are raising peers. Does it ever go positive? What do you guys think? Does peers, influencing peers on a regular basis tend to go positive? It can. Does it? Occasionally, sometimes. The question is, why does it tend to be towards the negative rather than the positive? And how to think about that. And I think that's important, and I'm going to throw that out there and leave it that way, because I think you can raise a culture in a ministry where the influence tends to be more positive than negative. 
where you can have a group of teens where you're cultivating that they tend to put positive peer pressure on each other in ways that foster relationship, that foster maturity, that foster good decision making. Um, but what you will tend to see in those contexts is that, again, there's going to always be positive adult influence that's leading the way, right? Why? Because the nature of a biblical worldview is we need counsel outside ourselves, that we don't inherently have wisdom, we don't inherently make good decisions on our own, that left to our own devices, we will often inaccurately make sense out of life, and that we need one another, and we need the work of the Spirit, and we need the counsel of the Lord to engage us and to keep us on the right path. So why would we presume teens wouldn't need that? Um, and that we need to, again, model that. So adult influence. Again, think about that for a minute. What should it do, at least? I'll give a should, because we all know there are very negative adult influences as well. Why is this important? Because we got to think if we're building bridges with teens, why is it important to say, well, I need to be a more uh, influential voice in their life? So um, sometimes I'll talk about parental authority, but parental authority sounds like a dirty word. It sounds like something that's about a power kick. It sounds like it's something about um, force and um, influence by, by force and power. And I would say we're losing track, again, of a biblical view of authority, which is why teens are revolting against it. So just for the sake of conversation, I'm using words like influence, parental influence or adult influence, that we need to be more influential. And authority is a really good thing when it's a rightly ordered authority, right? It's good and it's loving and it cares for the person that it is taking care of, all the things it should be. You guys ever see this phrase before? Rules without relationship equal rebellion. I didn't come up with it. I think it's profound, so I, I can't take credit for it. I think it might have been Josh McDowell or somebody. But rules without relationship equal rebellion. Think about that for a minute. When I grow up in a context where it's rule-driven, but there's no love, there's no personal relationship, what do kids tend to do? They rebel, right? Now, you flip that around, and the irony is I think the exact same thing happens, that kids that grow up in families that are all about making their parents their best friends, and there aren't any rules, and there aren't any uh, curfews, and they're allowed to do anything they want, also tends to end in rebellion. It's very ironic, because what you're seeing is it can't be one or the other. That life rightly ordered means there's a way to live life. So one of the things I often say to teenagers in counseling, I'm always looking for ways to approach hard top topics like sex or drugs or technology. And I try not to be anti. And that's part of the problem that when we're reactive in parenting or we're reactive in teaching or we're reactive in dealing with kids' behaviors, we tend to be anti everything. So I tend to surprise kids by talking about, you're right, sex is a great thing. Everybody should be talking about it, right? Why aren't we talking about it in really positive, good ways? And I'll often bring out a cell phone and talk about, you know what? Um, cell phones are awesome. I can do so many things with them. And then I'll list with a, a teen or a group of teens, well, what are things you can do with a cell phone? 
Well, you can order pizza. Well, you can get an Uber. Well, you can shop. You can watch videos. You can, and, you know, at nauseum, you're thinking of all the things it can do. And then you're thinking of, well, what are the things it can't do? Well, it can't swim in the pool. Though nowadays, of course, Apple has to go and be waterproof, so I can't use that example anymore. I can say, well, it can't make dinner for you, right? And somebody goes, well, actually, it can order dinner for you and, and send it to you. And so before you know it, this phone's going to be able to do everything. And so you're brainstorming, well, what are things that the iPhone can't do? And coming up with several things it can't do, and I'll say, have you ever gotten really ticked off at Apple and called them because they couldn't do that thing? Any of you guys ever did that? You ever called Apple complaining that your phone can't fly you to Mexico? Well, why not? Why? Because they would hang up on you and think you were loony. And you would be a little loony if you did that. Because here's the principle. You and I would go, well, it wasn't created to fly. Or it wasn't created to have relationship with you. Or it wasn't created to swim in the ocean. Well, here's a principle. God creates, the world corrupts. God creates sex. Sex is a really good thing. The world corrupts it. So I can be mad at the way God created it, and I can say, I don't like you, God. What's wrong with you? I want to be able to use sex whenever I want. And God says, well, anytime you go outside the way I created it to be used, it won't work right. Just like when I take my phone and take it into a pool, I can do that, but it's not going to work right and it might actually break. And anytime you go outside the way the designer of the iPhone designed it to be, you're risking not only it not working, but it breaking. So you can call up Apple and you can all day long complain about how wrong it is that they didn't make it a certain way to do what you want it to do, but at the end of the day, it's on you. So you take that metaphor and you talk about, so you can say God is a killjoy, God created sex a certain way or enjoyment or relationships a certain way, and now you're telling me I have to use it that way. Well, yeah, just like the iPhone, you go outside the way it was created to use, it's going to break. It won't deliver what you think it's going to deliver for you. It won't keep its promises to you. Why? Because it wasn't created that way. Do you see how that's a little different than me being reactive and telling them how bad it is and how sex is wrong, you shouldn't have it outside of marriage, and all the things that are true, but I can talk about it in a way that woos them to the Lord, or I can talk about it in a way that sounds like it's all about the rules and it's not about the relationship. But if I put it in the context of relationship and say, we love you, we want what's best for you, I know this is hard to hear, I know you want to do what you want to do, but do you understand that we're trying to do this for you good? And I've built a solid relationship. They still might have a hard time with it, but they will submit to that. They will engage with that. They will know you love them even when they don't like what you have to say to them. And that is key because any good influence in relationship is going to say there are rules and you have to follow them. Um, and likewise, rules without relationship teach them that you are insignificant or inconsequential. Any thoughts about that? The skill is to listen, the gift is to hear. How many times have you guys been talking to somebody and you see them nodding your head, but you totally know they've checked out, they're not really listening, or they're watching the people over your shoulder as they walk by and you're talking and you know they're not paying attention to you. There's a distinct difference between listening to somebody and really hearing them. 
what does it look like for you and I to engage young people in a way they know we're hearing, we're listening? And that doesn't presume agreeing, but it presumes you are known and understood. And that we are regularly fostering conversations with them that desire that. Let me give you some examples. Um, nothing can substitute for genuine care and concern. Pursue kids, pursue conversations with them. Now I have to do this for a living. And so imagine when I have parents that bring a resistant 16-year-old into my office and say, they're angry, they don't want to be here, now help us. And that 16-year-old just stares at you and folds her arms in front of you and says, I'm not talking to you. That is just the most fun a human being could have for an hour. Um, and so I'm sitting there, and I try to be as non-threatening as possible, and hopefully you can tell I'm fairly non-threatening as it is. Um, non-threatening as possible, I'm drawing them out. I'm like, well, since your mom and dad are making you come, throw mom and dad under the bus. Since mom and dad are making you come, what are we going to talk about? Because I'm just doing anything to get them talking to me, to want to talk to me, to engage with me. So I'll talk about the fact that the Eagles lost getting into the championship. Or I'll talk about, you can tell I'm from Philly, I'll talk about what peers or teenagers your age are doing. Or I'll talk about how stupid it is that your parents have these rules. I'll talk about whatever you want to talk about if it gets you talking and engaging with me. Because I want to show, I really genuinely want to show care and concern even about the things that are completely inconsequential to me and try to draw them in and gain relationship. So when a child says, I don't know, um, how many of you guys will ask really tough questions of teens and you get this answer? You all should be raising your hands. So both as a counselor and as a parent, I hear I don't know at nauseum. And I'll tell you what I do in counseling and then I'll tell you what I do as a parent. Because in our home, our kids know that this phrase uh, I don't know is not an answer. And they'll walk around the house and go, I don't know is not an answer um, to each other when somebody says, I don't know. Um, because several things happen here. So let me backtrack again. Years ago, I read um, a research. I go and get training on a regular basis. And I read some research that said, um, when kids say, I don't know, and you say, well, if you did know, what would your answer be? 50% of the time, they will give you an answer. Brilliant, isn't it? So somebody says, I don't know to you, and you say, well, if you did know, what would your answer be? You get an answer all of a sudden? Think about that for a minute. Why is that? Why? Why would you get an answer? I think there are several principles, and this is just my opinion, but I think it's because what you're doing is you're very gently and non-threateningly say, I'm willing to wait. I, I want an answer, or I care about you. It's kind of like when you walk by somebody, you say, how are you doing today? You don't really expect somebody to go into a one-hour discussion with you about how they're doing, do you? And I think sometimes I don't know is received as a I'm off the hook, or I don't have to think about it, or I don't really have to share deeply with you. There could be multiple reasons kids don't know. And sometimes in counseling, when I, when I ask kids, I don't know really is, they lack the insight. They don't understand what's going on inside. But genuine caring concern says, well, I'm willing to wait. So what was interesting about this project is I found that I was actually already putting this into practice. I just wasn't using that language. So in counseling, I would sit and say, well, you know what? What you think is really important to me, so I'm willing to wait. Take a minute and think about it. Are you uncomfortable yet? How long would I have to stand here silently for you to start getting uncomfortable? 
Well, in a really positive way, that can work to your advantage and my advantage, right? When we're in front of a teen and I just sit there silently staring at them. Now, if I'm making them mad, that's not a good thing. But if I'm genuinely saying, I care about what you think, I want you to take a minute and think about it, and then I sit there silently, who's the pressure on in that moment? And usually what I'll get is, well, I don't know, but, and they'll throw something out. And oftentimes we start getting somewhere. Oftentimes they are answering. Or they'll sit there and they'll take it as a, oh, yeah, well, I'll win this battle. And they'll fold their arms and go, I don't know. And I'll go, okay. Well, like I said, I, I really care about you. I really want to understand what's going on. So take a minute and think about it. And we'll do the waiting game again. And it will be awkward and it will be uncomfortable, and I'm sitting there thinking, please answer me, please answer me, please answer me. This is painful. Or I'm sitting there thinking, all right, at what point are they really getting ticked off and I need to change the subject, and when do I just need to wait them out? And you know what? What I found over and over again across the years is that moment where I'm just about to end the conversation because I think it's not going anywhere, they start to talk, which says something about a learned response that adults won't wait for me that if I just don't answer, and we, we do it in schools all the time. If a teenager says, I don't know, I wasn't listening, the teacher just moves on to the next student. They won't want to waste their time. If we do it in the home, parents go into lecture mode and it gets the teenager off the hook from really having to share or evaluate what's going on in their heart. If we do it in the counseling room, then what happens? Well, we try to give them the answers for them. And when a child really is stuck or teens really stuck, then what you and I should be doing is say, well, let's brainstorm together. What could be all the possibilities? What might be some reasons? Because now I've taken off that you have to have the right answer. And kids do have that anxiety too. If I don't give the right answer, I'm going to regret it. And you and I being willing to do several things, saying, you know what? If you did know, what would your answer be? Or, you know what? I care about you. Let's let's wait, I'll wait for you, or let's brainstorm together. And there always is the real reason in that brainstorming session, by the way. But you're saying, I don't know is not an answer. I'm willing to wait. I care about you. And that's not me pushing my authority around on them, right? That's me wanting to build bridges and influence them in a kind and loving way. Now, I was already doing that, so that should have been encouraging to me, but I thought, I'm actually going to try that. I'm going to, next time I have a chance when a child says, I don't know, I'm going to say, well, if you did know, what would your answer be? So I was in a counseling situation one time with a young person, and I got the I don't know question. And I said, huh, well, if you did know, what would your answer be? And, and this was a boy, and he, and he goes, well, I think it might be, hey, wait a minute. I saw what you just did. I'm not answering that. <laughs> I'm like, shoot, that doesn't work after all. Um, but there's the irony again that you've got to do what is really genuine to you. It's kind of like when kids think we're trying to be cool just to fit in with them and we're clearly not cool at all and we don't fit in with what we're doing and we just look like dorks when we do it. But there's something to being you and how you do care for you, not mimicking how you do care for other people. In the low home, we also have something called forced family fun day. Now, you guys, this is brilliant. You have to do it with any young person where you can just say, this is forced fun day. We're going to do it. Matter of fact, it became a joke at the counseling center I work at because they've heard me say it so much. They're like, this is forced faculty fun day. Let's go do it. Um, but in our home, especially with teenagers, when all they want to do is be on the Xbox or they don't 
want to go do, go on a hike or whatever it might be. I'm like, come on guys, Force Family Fun Day, we're going. And I drag them, complaining and grumbling. And guess what? We have a good time. Why? Because my goal is always to be engaging well with them. And on rare occasion, will they not admit that it was actually fun? By the end of it, they will often be on board going, okay, I guess that wasn't so bad, or I guess that was fun. Um, what does it look like to say there is resistance, there's going to be resistance, there's going to be frustration, but when I model something very different, I can win them over. So here's, again, this idea of I want to woo them to something better. I don't want to use power and force, but I do want to use influence where I'm engaging them. And I'm repeatedly, the message they're hearing is not, uh, Julie's so mean, she just keeps making me do this stuff. The message they're hearing is, Julie's really dorky, but I'm going to follow her, and I end up liking what we do anyway. And they see that there is care and concern behind that. You guys kind of get in the feel of what I'm saying, that there's just this theme of, we have to not be afraid of kids' resistance, for one. And really, the weight is on you and I to prove that we're trustworthy adults in their lives and that we pursue them, we actively engage them. Look for opportunities to talk about questions. So again, in our home, the place I see this most, and this is a great tip in ministry, is when you are in a car and everybody's strapped into seatbelts and they have no place to go. Make them take their earphones out, do not turn on the radio and actually communicate and ask questions. And sometimes what I'll do is, and I do this in counseling and as a parent, but in counseling, when I know a child's struggling with cutting, let's say, and they're not talking to me about it yet, I'll just say, so tell me what teenagers your age, like how are they thinking about cutting? Do you know how many friends that do it? And they won't talk about themselves, but they will totally talk about their peer group and tell me everything their peers are doing. Well, am I learning about that person then? Absolutely. Am I learning about the influences surrounding how they think and why they're doing what they're doing? Absolutely. So I'll say things like, well, tell me why the girls in your class cut. What, what makes them do it? And how do you hear about it? Like, do they talk about it openly? Don't they talk about it openly? What do the guys think about the girls who, who do self-injury? What do, what do they say to it? Do any adults know they do it? Do you know if the parents know what's happening? So I'm not talking about them. I'm taking the pressure. They're not on the hot seat, but I'm finding all about their world and how they're thinking and what's influencing them. And slowly say, well, that must be hard for you. What's that like for you in that situation? And I'm connecting the dots back to them. Now, again, there's probably hundreds of ways you can have a conversation like that. But I'm looking for the least threatening way. I'm trying to engage them well and love them well. And I'm drawing them in the conversation. And when you do that, they start to do it back to you. Being willing to bring up the hard topics before they do and demonstrate it's not uncomfortable or inadequate. So I train um, counselors, young counselors and intern counselors. And it is the funniest conversation to have with some of the new counselors who say, Julie, these kids are talking about sex and things they're doing with their, their girlfriends and their boyfriends, and I'm so embarrassed. They're turning red in the middle of the counseling office. I'm like, you can't do that. You've got to fake it till you make it. Come on, snap out of this. Because the moment young people see you and I are uncomfortable with the topic, what happens? They stop talking about it. So even when topics are hard for you and I to talk about, we need to act like it's the most natural thing in the world. Why? Because it should be the most natural thing in the world for them to talk to adults and positive, 
influences in their life where they're being informed by that. But the moment you and I show squeamish feelings is the moment people shut it down. And again, you know that, you and I know that too in relationships. You and I could be talking about something hard and we see how people are reacting and we see, all right, this isn't a safe person to talk to about this. They're not getting it, they're uncomfortable, they don't understand. You and I have to do a better job at we model, this is the most normal thing in the world to talk about in the youth ministry, or this is the most normal thing to talk about when we're driving to a baseball game, or these are the kind of conversations we have all the time. So a friend brings a friend along, and you guys are having conversations about homosexuality, and the friend goes, man, you guys always talk like this? And the teenager goes, yeah, this is normal. Why? Because we're fostering a culture that says no topics off limit. This is a safe place to talk, and we'll listen, but we're also going to engage with you. Does that make sense to everybody? Any thoughts or questions so far? Oh, that's so hard, because as a parent, I'll answer that as a parent, I do want to be the first one to talk to them about it. But if they're 15 years old or 14 or even 13 years old, then I've already waited too long as a parent, which tells you why in youth ministry part of the struggle is you winning the parents over to think this way. Because you guys can have all the right motives and all the right intentions, and then you have parents pushing back on you saying, you have no right talking about this. This should be for the family to talk about. And my answer, if I could be gracious in it, would be, you're absolutely right. Why haven't you done it yet? And the church has to be the culture to do it too. So we need, the parents need the church's ability. As a parent of five teenagers, I need the church to be willing to affirm what I'm teaching in the home, but I better be teaching it in the home. And if I'm not, I'm proving inadequate. I'm giving up my parental authority already, and my kids are going to be won over by some voice. So you know what? If I was smart, I'd rather have it be your voice than the voice of the culture. Right. So what do you do when what the parents are teaching doesn't align with what your views or the church's views are? So there are several thoughts on that. One is here why as a ministry in a church, I want and I wish there was more training for families and parents on these topics. I wish the church was offering parenting seminars and talks about sex and talks about technology and talks about all the hard stuff because then parents are hearing and learning how, one, the church thinks about it, and two, they're hearing and learning ideas of how they should be talking to their kids about it, and three, they're hearing and learning, if you're not talking to your kids, we will be talking to your kids, so you might not want to send them here. Um, and I don't know many churches that will say that, but the message has to be unapologetic. We want kids to come up with a biblical worldview in their lives, and if you're not doing it as parents, somebody's going to win them over. And wouldn't you rather be us or the culture? And you have to be unapologetic about that, gracious. You have to walk alongside parents because there's a lot of parents that feel uncomfortable. Or you take the issue of sex. I don't know why I'm picking on that today. Sorry. but Because um, it's such a, a, a taboo topic. And a lot of parents grew up in uh, families where it was never discussed. So they don't know how to talk about it or they are really, really blind to the fact that their kids are being exposed early and earlier. Now, you all know in this room that kids are exposed to sexting and nudity if they have any access to electronics, and even when they don't, they're getting it on their school buses when they sit down next to a kid next to them with an iPhone. They are being exposed younger and younger, but parents can be kind of oblivious, and I'm speaking as a parent now, too. They can be kind of oblivious and think that, well, my kids don't have cell phones, so I don't have to talk to them about pornography. Are you kidding me? 
Of course you do, because they need to know the right way to think about it when they're exposed to the wrong way to think about it. We have to be speaking into their lives younger and younger and earlier and earlier, because it's far better to inform their view on a subject than have to go back and debunk an accurate view. So it's not your job to lecture parents that way, but it is the job, I would say, of a ministry and a church to get parents thinking about that, to make them more aware, to woo the parents that they need to be speaking more clearly and authoritatively on the subject. And if they're afraid to, well, guess what? Our ministry offers these kind of talks, and we're going to do it in youth group tonight, and parents are welcome to join and sit in the back and listen so you know exactly what your kids are being told. That it is fostering both with parents and families and with the teens a, a mentality in the church that we talk about the hard stuff, and we're not afraid of it. Yeah, I think... Probably telling the parents ahead of time you're having the conversation is always the pro. But sometimes, you know, in, in, right, in the car it could happen, other places. And there's two things that happen. You will tell them and their admiration for you will grow that you're having the hard conversations and that you inform them about it. Or the other thing that will happen is you'll tell them and they'll be completely ticked off at you for having that conversation with them and you'll get chewed out for it. Um, and either way, you're doing the right thing by telling them and having the conversation and saying, listen, the kids were asking, they were having a conversation, so your son and daughter listened too. I just want you to know what was said so you have context. And I, to some degree, am an apologetic about it, but I'm unapologetic about it. And to say, but this is why we have youth group. This is why we have these conversations, that there are adult influences in their lives speaking well. Would you rather me just let the kids talk about it and I remain silent? Well, that would be really foolish, wouldn't it? So it does feel like a catch-22 sometimes, which is why in a ministry context, I would hope the whole ministry gets on board with you are really trying to win the parents over here too. You guys all know that when you only work with teens um, and you're not engaging well with parents or have a good working relationship with parents, that you're missing half the battle. I will often say to parents in counseling, as much as I work with your teen, I'm going to work with you. Why? Because I believe you're your child's wise counselor. My job is to work myself out of a job. I believe the Lord equipped you to love them well. And so I want to give you the skills to know what to do to help your child just as much as I'm working with them, which means you're going to be part of the conversation at some points, and you're not going to be part of the conversation at some points. You might be part of the problem, and I might have to talk to you about that, but you are always part of the solution. And so I want parents to be equipped. I want them to know that they need, their children need them to understand them and love them well, more than they'll ever need me to as a counselor. And I am there for a short season. So we all should be wanting to equip parents and families to do that task well. Yeah, and a great way to respond too is to say, well, what would you have wanted me to do? in that situation. And sometimes they're only thinking about their child and they forget there were five other kids in the car that were having the conversation with or without you. And when you're able to say, do you know if I had said nothing, then it would have been your, your son's five other friends talking about it without any adult interaction? Would you have preferred that? Um, and just giving context sometimes, because you're right, it is, it is often a this is my job, not your job, or they feel like you're crossing the line when they're forgetting kind of the context in which it happened. Yeah, that's a tricky one. So obviously as a counselor, and the issue of confidentiality is always the, uh, the thing on the table, especially with teens. And here's the question I will ask teens. 
um, do you want your parents to know how to love you better? And ironically, out of maybe 18 years of counseling, I've never had a child say no to that. So part of it is them understanding, and here's how I couch it too. I'll say, listen, there's nothing your mom and dad aren't going to know that I haven't told you first. So that's how I weasel my way around that one. Um, but then we talk it out, and I'll say, I can't promise that there aren't going to be things I have to tell your mom and dad, but I can promise you, you will know, and I will always tell you ahead of time, and we'll walk through it. And when I'm trying to convince, it's, again, far better for me to convince a teen to tell their parents themselves or to be in the room and let me tell them with them than for me to have to do it by force, though if I have to, I have to. Um, but the way I couch it is, listen, as much as we, I want to help you, I want to help your parents know how to love you better. I want to help them know how to engage you well. Um, so that means that I'm going to have to be helping them because they don't understand what's going on right now. So I try to talk in ways of your parents don't know how to love you well, and I want to help them know how to love you well. And there's rarely a teen that isn't going to embrace that to some degree. Now, the battle might still be on, especially when you have to inform a parent of something. But I try to always set the context that, guys, as much as we work with you, we're going to be working with your parents because they, they need to know how to understand you guys better. They need to know how to understand teens and what you're experiencing and struggling with. Don't you guys all want that? And of course, they'll hopefully all nod their heads in that moment. Um, but it's when the rubber meets the road that you have to walk through those hard moments. Could be both. I, um, I think it, it's situational. So here's wisdom. Wisdom says parents in particular want formulas, but we even as adults or counselors or youth workers, we want formulas. Tell us what to do when this situation happens. And I think there's always really good principles, but then there's the wisdom of the moment. So it could be in one moment a child needs discipline. Um, in an, another moment they need grace. I'll, um, I can think of a couple examples. So I'll give you a parenting example from, from our own family. One of our daughters uh, cheated once in school. Um, and it was a shocker to us because this is our good kid. She's a studier. She's not like that. She kind of follows the rules. But um, she got caught in school or a substitute teacher uh, took her paper away and she knew she was caught and she must have been sick to her stomach all day long having to come home and tell me or wondering if the teacher already called me and told me. And the irony is I didn't know at all. And I think she knew that because that night she said, Mom, Dad, can I talk to you? Okay, and she had that look like, you know your kids, this is a serious look, and sat down and began to tell us, and she was sobbing hysterically. I mean, immediate guilt, conviction, remorse. There was a bit of, I was caught. Um, and in that moment, she did not need us to come down with all parental force, right? What she needed was compassion and love. She needed to know we were glad she was coming and telling us. Um, she needed to talk about, honey, this is the consequence of sin. I mean, look how this makes you feel. Look what this does. Why did you make this choice? And at the end of that, we never did punish her. Um, why? Because it was so clear she was already paying the price herself. And in that moment, what I wanted her to walk away with is, I can tell mom and dad anything even when I fail. Um, now, there are moments where if you crash the car or you take the car out at night and steal it and bring it back in the morning and there's a dent or there's things like that, there's a moment where I might say, honey, I'm really glad you told me. Thank you. There still will be a consequence, but thank you for telling me. I always need to affirm the relationship, and I always need to affirm the fact that they told me. 
why do I choose one over the other in any given situation? Well, you all know that's a wisdom issue. You've worked with teens enough that when a teen is standing before you, you get a sense for whether they're telling you because they're caught or they're telling you because they think you're going to find out and they want to beat you to it and hopefully get out of the consequence or they're telling you because they're really broken over their sin. So the better question in asking that, it's a great question, should be from you and I, we should say, well, how does God deal with our sin? So when a teen or my own child comes before me confessing their sin, how does God, here's that waterfall effect, right? How does God deal with my sin when I come before him and confess him? And there are times, if not more than not, where he is gracious and merciful and slow to anger. And then there are times where I will still have the repercussion of my sin, right? I can't get away from it. And so you and I should always say, what in that moment does it look like to imitate Christ? And then we're going to know when moments require consequence or natural consequence and when moments require grace. Great question. When you know that parents, I'm adding to this, when you know parents might be part of the problem here and that by telling them actually more harm will come than good, and that's when you and I need to go to some other trusted adults in the ministry context and say, here's my concern, how should we handle this? And again, because it always depends on the moment, my guess is that maybe it takes one or two adults going to the parents and saying, we need to share this, but here's our concern, here's how we don't want you to respond, and of course we can't control what parents do. But what we're doing is we're paving the road to try to have a healthier interaction. So depending on what it is would, tend be, would inform how you and I go about doing that. Um, and that is true in counseling, that there's things in counseling that I think, I know if I told the parent they'll go ballistic, and I actually think it will ruin everything. And I might withhold saying something in hopes that I can, again, it, it, again it's so informed by the context, but in hopes that I can convince the teenager or the young person to make steps of change, or I can convince the teenager or young person to go to their parents themselves, or I can find an aunt, an uncle, a youth minister, somebody that I think will come alongside them and help them in that moment. So I think it requires wisdom, sometimes it requires creativity, and sometimes it requires bringing more people into the situation to prevent that. Yeah. Yep, suicide, abuse, and harm to others are non-negotiables. That's true, I mean, those are just probably the laws across any state right now in the country for all of you and for me that if ever there is abuse that must be reported, that if the person's causing harm to themselves or to others, that must be told and reported to the right person. The trickier stuff is when does drugs, when does sexual acting out, um, when does gender identity issues, when things like that, when does risky behaviors like theft or, um, believe it or not, stealing automobiles, things like that, when does that come into the picture of saying this has risen to a level um, breaking laws seems uh, like a clear one, but even then I think there are wisdom issues on how you handle that um, and how, again, is this child coming and telling me because they want help and they're willing to change, that will inform now who I'm going to inform and how I'm going to inform them, or is this child caught and I'm confronting them with it and now what do I do with that? Um, so those would be the top two or three that are non-negotiable. And then the others, again, are the wisdom principle of what's the context happening here? And are they willing to get help? And how do we navigate that?
Yeah, I talk about this a lot, so you'll actually have to rein me in from going off on a tangent here, but um, you cannot know how a secular system will handle things, and the fear always is they make things worse, not better. And that is not always true, but it is true enough that it can become a really good generalization. Um, but you and I have to submit ourselves to the governing authorities, and their goal in the best scenarios is to protect children and keep them safe. Um, so you and I have the, the mandate to report abuse, but then we also need the pastoral wisdom to walk alongside people when it's unfolding. So the hard thing is once we report it, we have no control over the outcome, and we don't. <coughs> However, we always do have control over our outcome. How are we going to walk alongside this family? How are we going to walk alongside this teen? What I'm seeing an increasing uh, growth in is uh, siblings offending against siblings. And what you guys will see a lot of is sexting and when has it crossed the line now where it's called pornography and it has to be reported. So depending on the state you're in, um, and in my state, this is part of the dilemma that even sharing uh, sexting photos means now that technically I have to report that, um, even if it feels like peer-on-peer, -peer, but sometimes it's a year or two younger. Um, so it gets really, really tricky. And what you're seeing is a lot of older kids or kids who are exposed to pornography younger and younger, they have no guidance in speaking into it. Um, and they're left to their own devices, and they don't know what to do with uh, these, this arousal of sexual feelings, so they turn to their siblings, who are in close proximity to them, and they act out sexually, not at all understanding the gravity of their behavior. They understand it's bad, but they don't, they're not thinking like a 50-year-old who's a pedophile, who's offending against a child. They're thinking like a teenager who has raging hormones and doesn't know what to do with them, doesn't understand the implication of it, the impact is the same, but the implications for a teenager are different, and they get thrown into this adult world of sexual abuse, and it wreaks havoc on families, on siblings, sometimes on a church. You'll see, especially in youth groups or in churches, I'll see it happening where um, all the elders are meeting one night, and the kids are left babysat by two teenagers, and abuse happens in those contexts where adults aren't supervising. It's just hard. And so you and I being willing to walk through the messiness and the complexity, that's the word I use all the time, especially in uh, abuse allegation situations where there's such a complexity of emotions, of opinions, of people who draw lines in the sand and whose side they're on. Now you, you add the fact that it could be two families struggling and both of those families are in the youth group or siblings are in the youth group and the complexity of all that. It's really, really hard. So you need to know, yes, it will be messy. Yes, there will be upset people. Yes, it'll be complicated, but we're gonna choose to walk alongside people and love them to the best of our ability on both sides of the fences. And we can control what the governing authorities do with this. We can only choose to say, we're going to walk alongside you as a family. Not a simple answer at all, but it's the most loving way to handle it. All right. So let me just wrap up this slide, and what am I saying here? I'm saying that there is a level where we drag teens kicking and screaming into relationship, 
And there's a level where we're wooing them into relationship with us. And it really isn't that complicated. If we just were willing to show genuine care and engage in the hard topics, sometimes it's our own inadequacy, though, that, um, that makes us restrained from doing that or makes us hesitant to engage with doing that. So incarnational relationship, it is never too late. It might be harder, but it is never too late. I love this quote. It says, developing Christian standards is like building a fire in the rain. It requires willful determination against all odds to do what seems impossible. It calls for expertise, know-how, which understands the stubborn nature of the child and the nature of a hostile world. It demands a stubborn perseverance to keep fanning the flickering flame. There's a tongue twister. To keep protecting the hot coals. So I love that, the stubborn perseverance that says you are worth it, you're worth pursuing. Here's another way of talking about it. So this waterfall effect, what does it look like? Um, how do we continue to imitate Christ in ways that draw young people to the Lord? Well, there's this difference between human love and God's love, right? Human love is limited, it's flawed, it's not always accessible, and it's prone to disappoint. I don't want to set myself up for the fact that I am going to be the hero that comes and wins the day for a teen. They have to hear me be humble enough to say, you know what, I am flawed. I might fail you, but I will care for you. Um, I'm not always available at the drop of the hat. I can't always be accessible. Um, so when you and I set ourselves up in some degree as the hero in the situation without pointing them to the Lord, then again, we're teaching them to rely on human interaction, human love. So instead of a peer, it's you and I, but that's not enough. We ultimately always have to point to a God whose love, as we see here, is limitless, it's perfect, it's always accessible, and it's incapable of disappointing. So I want to love the way Christ loved us, and that means that I am always trying to point a child or a teen to the love of the Lord, that anything good in me that they see, any care that they see in me, that I can point them back to a God that loves and cares for them more intimately and personally than I ever can. Another way of saying that, too, is there are places inside a teen's head and heart that nobody can go but the Lord, right? And again, you see this a lot with anxiety issues with teens where they are so wrapped up and so tortured inside or struggling so much or so afraid that they might find comfort in you and I. I hope they do find comfort in you and I, but it is always our job to point them to the God of comfort, that I'm always pointing them that he can be there. He can go to the places inside your head and heart that only you know that nobody else sees and hears, and he can meet you there in those moments. Here's another way of saying it, again, trying to get at this picture of a waterfall to keep going. So Corinthians, I love the passage where it says, comforting others with the comfort we've been given. So you have this picture of the God of all comfort who comforts us so that we may comfort others. There again is that waterfall effect, that every good and perfect gift flows from above, that you and I are a conduit of Christ's life in us. And what does that mean? Why is that important? Because it means that we're ultimately wooing them to the God of comfort. We're ultimately wooing them to the creator of their story. 
Here's other ways of saying that. So you have these passages in scripture that keep pointing uh, people to God himself. And so what's the message? That the answer to a lot of our struggles is his presence, that he is our comfort, that he is um, our resource. We tend to wrestle with this. We tend to wrestle with pointing kids to the God who is personal and intimate. And here's what I'm seeing over and over again. I'm sure you guys have had a lot of discussions about kids and their culture and, and different generations and what they wrestle with. But God, the idea of a personal God seems absent in kids' lives. Um, the rules, the church, uh, they have an idea of what their family expects. But God seems irrelevant, certainly impersonal. And so everything I'm saying is in this attempt to respond to that. What does it look like to help kids say in personal relationship, uh, people are changed? St. Augustine has this quote that says, love God and do as you please. Um, and I have it framed and, and in my office because it just so captures the way we need to think differently about relationship, right? Love God and do as you please. Now, I think about that for a minute. That doesn't give me a license that I can live however I want, which is, of course, what the teenager would take away, right? What that does is it means if I love God, everything I do will flow out of that. Every way in which I live my life, the choices I make, the actions I take, the places I go, what I fill my mind and my heart with, all those things will flow out of a love for God, just like my spouse. If I love my husband, then... Everything I do will either be a reaction out of love towards him or desire not to harm him. So I might choose not to do things that I know would upset him or offend him, not because I'm afraid of him, but because I love him. Or I will choose to buy certain foods or put certain shows on at night, not because I'm thrilled with those shows, but because I love him and I know he will love it. That the way I live my life out will be an expression towards my husband and my children. It will be an expression towards the people um, I care about most. So if I love God, then it is utterly liberating because everything you and I do is going to flow out of love for him. Well, that's a far better vision to talk about than telling kids, don't do this, don't do this. Here's what God says. Here's the rules. And it's so sad that that is what we reduce relationship to. C.S. Lewis says, it's a serious thing to live in a society of possible gods and goddesses, to remember that the dullest, most uninteresting person you talk to may one day be a creature which, if you saw it now, you would be strongly tempted to worship, or else a horror and a corruption such as you now meet only in a nightmare. All day long, we are in some degree helping each other to one or the other of these destinations. I love that sentence. All day long, we are in some degree helping each other to one or the other of these destinations. How do we engage in relationships with the people around us? Proverbs 25 says, The purposes of a man's heart are like deep waters, but a man of understanding draws them out. So who's the ownership on? The man of understanding. It is on you and I to work to draw kids out. It is on you and I to be thoughtful in trying to understand them and know them well. And that is a lot of work, especially with some teens that are highly resistant or closed off or fearful for whatever reason. 
So let me give you a couple different pictures. I like pictures, that's just the way my brain works. But especially in counseling, one of the things I'll say to families is, uh, people are like a puzzle. And I can be really good in the counseling profession at knowing struggles with anxiety or eating disorders or cutting or depression or marital issues, but everybody's a puzzle. Everybody is an individual, and that no matter how good I am at knowing struggles in counseling, I need to show them I'm going to be an expert at knowing you. You're a real-life human being, not just a problem to be solved. So think of with kids and teens how much tr more true this is, or equally true, that it's like putting a puzzle out on a table. And what do you do when you're putting a puzzle out on a table? Um, how do you start doing the puzzle? Well, a lot of times you start with the corners, right? Or you look for all the outside edges and you start building a picture by the outside and then you slowly work your way in. No matter how you put a puzzle together, the reality is that you're always trying to look to see what pieces fit. And sometimes you put two pieces together and you go, oh, these two fit together. And it's not until later on down the road another piece comes along and you realize, oh no, those two really don't fit, these two fit. And kids are like that. Teens are like that. You're trying to understand why they do what they do and why they think out of the way they think and why they're acting the way they're acting. And you put two and two together only to find out later that really something else makes better sense out of that. And so when you're working with parents or even when you're working with teens yourself, you're always trying to understand how, how does this child think? How do they act? Where do they struggle? Where are these strengths? Where are these weaknesses? Where are these aptitudes and disabilities? Here's another way of thinking about it. Um, this biblical worldview of man and who we are. And so we're all image bearers. Sorry, this is really tiny writing. We're all image bearers, we're all redeemed. We all deal with our fallen nature, with sinful nature, right? But then you have these two sides where with kids or teens, you have their creational weaknesses um, or their creational um, qualities. That means they're born with strengths and weaknesses and aptitudes and limitations. They might have disabilities. They might be highly gifted. They have a temperament. Um, nobody comes out of the womb a blank slate. They have a temperament. They have qualities about who they are that God wired them to be. So what creationally are they like? Then you have situationally. And this is a lot of times what you guys are also wrestling to work through as well, right? The situational stuff, their personal histories, their experiences, their sufferings and blessings, their family background. And so they come into youth ministry and you are, you're dealing with things that are creational, but you're also dealing with things that are situational, right? What are things that they bring to light? What are their experiences that have informed them that they've struggled with, whether they've been bullied or whether they have struggled with... Um, things in their past or whether they've had wonderful upbringings, all those things are informing the pieces of the puzzle. Again, another picture, just another way of saying this. So you have this idea of what, what's a biblical view of man. Well, we're sinners, we're sufferers, we're saints. A colleague of mine from the counseling center, Mike Emlett, has this picture of um, we're all, uh, we're all children of God. We're all image bearers. We're all sinners. We struggle with our fallen nature and how we engage with the world around us. But then we're also sufferers. We all live in a broken, fallen world where we're touched by sin and disease and brokenness and pain and suffering and hardship and mistreatment. That those, That is a picture of what we all struggle with. 
And then there's you and I in the middle, right? So all of us are this triangle and all of us are completely different in the middle. We all have different giftings. We all have different strengths and weaknesses. We all have different ways of, of engaging with the world around us. And that's what makes us individual and makes us unique. So in the context of the teens you're working with, it's helping them see themselves in light of scripture, but also saying there's a great deal of freedom uh, for individuality and that we foster that and we encourage that and we take the time to understand each teen for who God created them to be. Here can be the tricky part of this though. So another picture, you have character, you have temperament. Temperament I'll define as <clears throat> these innate qualities there's innate, there's innate qualities. So you all know the talkers in the group and the really quiet ones in the group, right? The shy, they're not so shy. Or the leaders or the followers. Um, or what, the organized or the non-organized. Those are just innately how we tend to be wired naturally. But then you have this issue of character. Character are developed traits, right? Um, where it's patience, it's honesty, it's integrity, it's uh, their moral fiber of who they are, where they are um, becoming Christ-like or should be becoming Christ-like in their nature. What gets tricky though, and what I see with parents and adults is we, we struggle with the mix of the two. When does something that's an innate quality become a character issue? And when is something that I think is character issue really a strength or weakness? So here's where you have that middle line I drew, and I tried to give you some examples, like sensitivity. Um, there are some people that ooze sensitivity, right? Can you think of anybody like that? They just, they're so sensitive um, that they'll cry at a car commercial, or um, they'll cry at a uh, dead mouse on the side of the road. Um, the irony of if my husband were standing right here, he'd be pointing his finger at me um, as an example. Then there are people that just seem to not be moved by anything. Like, you could have the worst horror story, you could be watching the movie of the Holocaust and they're just unmoved by it. They seem to have no sympathy for it and you're like, they're dead. Or they're completely psychopathic, what's wrong with them? Well, where do they fall on the spectrum? Clearly there is a spectrum, right? But here's a question, so when does sensitivity become a strength or weakness? When it becomes a character flaw or a character strength or a temperamental strength or weakness, right? So I'll pick on myself here for a minute because it's just easier. Um, so when I was little, I'm clearly in the sensitive category or empathy. Um, I ooze empathy, which hopefully is a really good thing for a counselor, right? Um, when I was little, I would um, cry at every stray animal I saw. The moment I knew it was a stray, I'd be begging, please, mommy, daddy, can we bring the cat home? Please, can we bring the dog home? Please, can we bring the llama home? And to make it worse, we lived a block away from the local SPCA shelter. And for reasons unknown, people, rather than dropping their animals off inside, would just drop them off outside and drive away. And don't you know, it was like a magnet headed down to our home and all these stray animals would end up in our house. So probably at least once a month, I was a sobbing little girl saying, please, can we keep it? It's gonna die out there in the cold, please. Um, well, 
that was, I, I argue, just innately how I was wired. Um, I didn't have, one of my parents at least wasn't that way at all, and so I was a bit of this crazy little child, and I was that way with people or with animals alike. Um, I think maybe in first grade, my parents had a birthday party for me, and they asked, who do you want to invite Julie to your birthday party? And so I start listing off names of people I wanted to invite, and my mom's like, none of those are your friends. I said, yeah, but these people don't have any friends, so I want to invite them. Aw, isn't that nice? Was I such a godly seven-year-old child at that age? Was I just, the Holy Spirit was filling Julie low, and at seven years old, I was taking in the people, the unlovely of the world, and, and God's work, Spirit was at work in me? No. No, I was just being me. Now, it makes me seem like I was a really sweet me, right? But it wasn't. That was just who I was. And as I got older, there was a decision to make about whether that was going to be a redeemed Julie or an unredeemed Julie. But I was going to be Julie regardless. So an unredeemed Julie does what? I am a bleeding heart. I'm an animal activist. I'm who knows whatever I am. But it can be emotions and empathy run amok. A godly redeemed Julie keeps it in check feels compassion and sensitivity for the people around her and hopefully ends up being a foster parent and an adoptive parent and a menagerie of animals in our home as we live today. The key is, though, we tend to look at some of these qualities as either weaknesses when they're strengths or strengths when they're weaknesses instead of understanding what really defines that is who are you living for, right? So I was not born a blank slate. I was born with strengths and weaknesses. There are things I will never for the life of me be good at. I am directionally impaired. If ever there were a person who were impaired, you would never want me giving you directions in a car. Could you imagine if I was an air traffic controller? There'd be planes crashing left and right. The world would be coming to an end. There are certain things I'll never be good at. Well, that's okay. The question, though, is, is Julie going to be a redeemed Julie, a Julie that lives for the Lord, or is Julie going to be a Julie that is self-serving and lives for Julie? Because when I live for me, even my strengths become weaknesses. When I live for the Lord, even my weaknesses become strengths in the hand of God, that his strength is made perfect in my weakness. So when you are committed to being an expert at knowing the teen in front of you, it's understanding that what most teens lack is somebody being that mirror back to them, and they are growing up with identity crisis, and they're seeing themselves in either negative light or an overly positive light, right? Um, they think they're pretty hot stuff, or they're really down on themselves because they don't fit into the world around them. And we see this in educational situations or kids that struggle with academic stuff, or kids that aren't as attractive or athletic as the kids around them, that begins their weaknesses or their perceived weaknesses begin to define their value. And you and I have to be a mirror holding up to helping them understand their value and their strengths and their aptitudes that may be very different than the world defines them. And there's the struggle that we do live in a culture that has ladders, that ranks people according to attractiveness and successfulness, and academics, and giftings, and athleticism. And so kids grow up learning to say either I'm pretty hot stuff because I meet that criteria, or I'm worthless because I don't meet that criteria. 
And so you and I have to do a better job of helping think through when can these things be character issues, when can they be strengths and weaknesses, and how do we help the young people around us to think well about themselves and what informs their identity. Here's another way of saying that. So you have qualities in us, things like innate personality, fears, dreams, family dynamics. I have a culture coming at me. I have my family values and how my parents parented me. Maybe I have abuse issues or personal experiences. I have the church and awareness of God. All these things are coming at me. Well, how does that form my identity? When nobody is addressing that or speaking into that, all these things are coming towards you and I, and, and we are trying to interpret our experiences. We're taking these things in, and they're shaping the way we look at life. Well, if these are the things, for example, that's coming at a teenager, then what interpretations might they come up with? Well, if they've been adopted, or there's trauma or abuse, or uh, there's cultural awareness, there's their fears and hopes, there's peer pressures that a 15-year-old might go through, what might be some of their conclusions? Well, things like, I'm helpless, the world's not safe, I have to protect myself, I'm not loved, or I must be bad, I'm being punished, I wasn't given a choice, I have to earn love. It's not okay to be different, or God doesn't love me. See, unfortunately, kids who grow up in Christian, uh, Christian homes learn that God is a piece of the puzzle. But that seems to be all he is. It's just a piece of the puzzle or a piece of the pie, right? So he has some sense of informing their identity and how they look at life, but not the whole of it. So it just becomes another piece they're trying to make sense out of. And if they have hard things happening or if they feel like they're a failure or a misfit or they don't, uh, they're not as gifted as their peers around them, then they have the sense of being a failure or a loss and that God doesn't care or God must think of me this way. Because far too often you and I allow our experiences to inform our view of God rather than our view of God to inform our experiences. That is exactly what teens do, right? It's exactly what you and I do. That we let our life experiences inform what's true about God rather than who God is to inform what's true about our life experiences. And these will be the conclusions young people come up with if you and I aren't shaping the way they think about it. So if these are their interpretations, then how would you expect a teenager to act? Well, they think things like, uh, others must tell me what to do if I'm helpless, or if the world's not safe, then it makes sense I'm going to be fearful all the time. Um, I push others away before they hurt me. I don't expect God to help me. I hide from people to be accepted. I have to be perfect, or I choose to trust no one. When you and I see our stories outside of God's story. We will always make sense out of them. The problem is we won't make sense out of it accurately. So as you see up there, it says when teens learn to find identity in Christ, it doesn't negate the hard things in their life. It doesn't negate struggles that they're going to have. It just means that it creates this grid through which we can understand the experiences and accurately understand those experiences. So, yeah, let me give you an example here. Um, I want you guys to think for a minute about your favorite kind of genre. If you like to read, 
What is your favorite kind of books that you enjoy reading? Think for a minute. For some, it might be fantasy or science fiction or Lord of the Rings, or for others, it might be autobiography. Some enjoy reading romance or wild western. It could be anything, but I want you to think for a minute, what attracts you to the kind of story that you like to read? Even the kind of movies we like to watch, right? There's something about the genre and the type of story that draws us in. What is that? For most of us, it's something like the storyline is just really good, or it's fast-paced, or it's full of twists and turns, or it's got some kind of tragedy in it that triumph overcomes. Um, sometimes it's the author or the screenwriter or the director that an author can just be so good that no matter what they write, you're going to want to read it. Whatever book they come out with, you might not even know what it's about. You're up there buying it because you just know that they're so good at what they do that they can write a story like nobody's business, right? I'm in all of that, especially after just writing a book. It was pure torture. I have no gifts of writing when it comes to at least storytelling. So my esteem goes up 12 notches for people that can take all these twists and turns and random people and random events and somehow move them all together and by the... 25th chapter, it's all woven together. That is a fascinating skill that I just totally live in awe of. Well, think for a minute. If a human author can do that, how much better than our creator of the universe? How much more can he write a story where he takes all these random, crazy people, protagonists, antagonists, and enemies, and tragedy, and heartache, and promises that what others meant for evil, he will use for good. That he who began a good work in you, in the beginning of your story, is faithful to complete that good work. That if a human author can do such fascinating, amazing storytelling, how much more can the God of the Bible, can the creator of the universe, and the God of your story and my story, write a story like nobody's business? The problem is you and I often get lost in the fact that this is our story and we think we're the author. And how many times do you and I try to take the pen and paper out of pen or pencil or paper out of God's hand and we try to write our own story? And when we do that, we mess it up really good. It's kind of like a a uh, author who knows exactly what they're doing with their storyline and one of the characters comes in and starts erasing people in and out because they don't like who's in the story or they want to write people in so that they'll live happily ever after. And what we're doing is we're messing up the entire story because we can't see the end. We can only see the chapter we're in. And way too often, I want God to write my story completely different or differently. I want to be in charge of it. I want to tell him what should happen in chapter 20 and 25. And he's saying, you know what? Trust me. I am a good and faithful author. And if I began this good work, I will be faithful to you. Our kids are not growing up in this greater redemptive story. They're not seeing themselves a part of this broader story. And that's why they can't rest. You and I can't rest in the hard things in our life if we can't trust there's a good author writing our story and that he's up to something good. And although I'm in a chapter I don't like or although I've had hard chapters of my story, I trust that the author of the story is going to redeem it for good. Here's where everything he says about himself is either true or it's not true. 
that you and I look at stories like Joseph or Job, and we have to believe that if God allowed that, God's up to something good, that he's not random, he's not inconsequential, he's not cruel, but he will take something that looks like tragedy and he will use it for good in the lives of people around them. This is the message teens need for their story. They need to know they're not the author of their own story because the world is telling them they are. And we sometimes are silently allowing them to believe that. They do have choices in the story, right? They are the main character of the story, but they've got to remember there's a good faithful author writing their story and we have to help them make sense out of life accurately. So it goes back to what? Being proactive, not reactive. Again, I could probably say this at nauseum, but we have to start informing the way teens look at life and the reality around them. So whether it's technology, whether it's peer pressure, whether it's marijuana, whatever it is, whether it's vaping and juuling, we have got to be informing them. We've got to be giving them a grid to think about these things before it's right in front of them or they will be ill-prepared for what's about to face them. Okay, let me apply this for a minute to social media. So I know John's gonna be talking about this later on in the day, um, but here is part of the struggle. When you're talking about relationships, social media is hijacking our kids, right? And they are finding social media more influential than you and I. So how do we build bridges? Well, it depends who I'm talking to. For some parents, I would argue, you gotta be so much more careful with allowing teens on social media. I am not an anti-technology kind of person. I have a son who's losing his vision. His lifeline is technology. He lives on his iPad and he can function today in this world without being in a school for the blind because of Apple products. Thank you very much, Apple. Um, but I have to teach him good stewardship. And so think about this for a minute. We will spend more time thinking about giving kids a pocket knife than we do about giving them a cell phone, right? We would never dream of giving an immature nine-year-old a pocket knife. We're not hesitating giving seven and eight-year-olds an iPhone. What is wrong with us? A pocket knife versus a world that can open them up to all kinds of evil. There's good in it too, but all kinds of evil. It's almost like taking a 10 or 11 or even a 12-year-old and handing them the keys to my car and saying, well, guys, everybody in your class has keys to the car, so I guess I should give you keys to our cars too, right? And we're accepting that as the norm. Instead of evaluating, wait a minute, do they have the maturity? Do they have the responsibility? Do they even have the height to, to reach the gas pedal? Are we thinking about whether this is a wise thing to do or are we just being swayed by the wave that is overcoming our young people? So what's the issue here? God creates, the world corrupts. God creates sex, the world corrupts it. God creates enjoyment and pleasure, the world corrupts it. God creates food, the world corrupts it. God creates relationships, the world corrupts it. We want you to know the creation of it and to know that it can be good and rightly ordered if you're a good stewardship of it. However, there is a corruption of it that your peer group is following and you need to understand that it's a corruption. We've got to be really good at giving both messages and just not focused on dealing with the corruption when it happens. So uh, there's a book called Public and Permanent, not a Christian book, um, but still a really good one because what he does is he talks about this principle that everything you put out there is both public and permanent. 
And if you believe that, would that change the way you did social media? Now, I'm broadening it to say, would it change the way you did anything? If every conversation you had was put on a screen before us today and you knew that, would it change what you said? If everything you put on Instagram or Snapchat was put up on a screen, would it change what you do? Now, he is really skilled at working with social media, and so he would go back and um, MySpace. I mean, you guys remember having MySpace accounts? Yeah. He would go back and he'd find somebody in the audience who used to have a MySpace account like 15 years prior, and they thought it was disconnected and gone off of social media, and he would bring the whole thing up in front of like 500 people. And so here they are screening through things that a woman did like 15 years ago and everything on her MySpace account, it was still there. He talks about the hacks to Facebook and how there's actually apps that show you how to hack the hacks for Facebook to so get in other people's Facebook accounts, and it happens all the time. Like there is an app to undo anything, and most any parental control you put on phones too, and so it's always trying to keep up with the apps that are out there. And he says, there's nothing that is private on social media. And he was able to disprove. He would have a, um, I was in a workshop with him where people would raise hands and they'd give another example. And he'd go, all right, let me show you. And he would be able to get through anybody's privacy setting. Um, and hopefully he wasn't showing everybody in the room how to do that. But he was able to demonstrate how privacy is a myth online. He also was able to show how, so everything was public, how everything was permanent, that never really disappears. And how those six second Snapchat pictures that teens think disappear and there's no records of, people can go back and find again. And he said, if we did a better job at showing digital citizenship and showing that everything was both public and permanent, would it change the face of how our young people communicated? To some degree, yes. To some degree, no. Why? Because you and I know sinful human nature. And that there is a perception of safety and privacy no matter what screen you're behind. It used to be that if kids wanted to do something inappropriate, they had to leave the home to get away from it. Now they can be sitting right next to you at the dining room table on their cell phones and you have no idea what they're doing. You have no idea what they're engaging in. It's a different culture. And it's not that I think my children are actively pursuing bad things online. It's those bad things online are actively pursuing my children. And this is what parents aren't getting, right? And this is what we need to be continuing to show our teens because what I hear teenagers say is, but Julie, I'm not going to do anything bad with it. And they really don't want to, at least early on, until they get sucked into that vortex or they get sucked up into something they are unknowingly prepared for or until something pursues them, which is usually what happens, that they're not out looking for bad things, but bad things are out looking for them. And both families and teens are ill-prepared for the consequence of that. So anyway, that's all I'll say about social media, except to say that crosses every avenue where we can be naive to the fact that even when teens aren't actively pursuing bad things, bad things are actively pursuing our teens. And are we going to be vigilant in trying to keep them safe and trying to educate them and make them aware in a developmentally appropriate way? But we, to some degree, need to be guardians to them, where we're helping them make sense out of relationships and the nature of relationships and the, the culture around them in ways that are helpful. In many a Christian home, a child is told what he may or may not do, but is not trained to understand why. That method, quite frankly, is lethal. 
Deep within, he lacks the rationale, the conviction necessary to stand alone against a powerful world system. I love that quote, again, because it just gets to the crux of the fact that we need to give kids the ability to think. And they're losing the ability to think, to evaluate, to see good versus evil. And we live in a world that turns those things upside down. What is called evil is now called good. What is called good is now called evil or intolerant, right? And that we have to be actively engaging them in how to think and, and talking about these things. So, again, what you're hearing me see over and over again is be proactive, not reactive. Enter into their experiences, foster conversations about that. Let me give you a couple examples. Um, I say these to families all the time, but I'll, I'll speak more as a parent and how we might do this in our home. But this is great in youth ministries, it's great in churches, it's great even in the counseling room. Um, you guys ever heard of table topics? It's a box box and they're called table topics you can order them on Amazon you can find them in lots of stores now probably 500 cards in it it sits in a box and you just pull one out and it just asks a question what am I doing I'm not doing anything magical I'm just fostering conversation so ask a question like um, what was your favorite Christmas memory or uh, who is the person you admire most and what it does is it just says, share, talk, engage. So there's a novel idea. We have a, a no electronics at mealtime rule, um, which is really ironic when you go out to restaurants and you watch the families around you, right? And all my kids, so we're quite a crew that go out when we do go out to eat, and we'll point out, we'll say, guys, look around the restaurant here. Find a table where somebody's not on a cell phone. And then we'll dialogue with them. So they can either go, yeah, we're the freaks here, Mom. Why are you doing this to us? Or they can go, yeah, that's kind of sad. But we inform that, right? We'll say, what do you think about that? What do you think the fact that we're probably the only ones in here without cell phones out? And by the way, they nail us on that all the time as well. So if we're talking about something and my husband says, oh, no, I'll look it up. And he pulls a cell phone out in a heartbeat. Somebody's like, no cell phones at the table. Um, because you've got to practice what you preach, right? Um, and if they can do that in a gracious way, we let them call us out on it. But here's this idea that um, we are always trying to engage in conversation. And when we make up rules in our home, and when parents are called to make up rules, it is not the rules that they need to be emphasizing, it's the rationale behind the rules. So I'll give you an example. Again, we'll pick on our family. We tend to say no electronics on a school night. And again, we're the parents, we can break that rule whenever we want. And we sometimes do, because we don't want to be hard-nosed about it. But the principle is this. We say to our kids, listen, guys, you're in school like eight to nine hours a day by the time you get home. We have you maybe three hours tops. We love you. We actually even like talking to you, believe it or not. And it becomes a running joke in our home. No, we like you guys, especially when you're not fighting with each other. Um, we want to spend time with you. We got you for three hours. We want to be with you. So we're not saying no TV or no Xbox or no cell phones because we're mad or because we think it's bad. We're saying it because we really just want to be with you. We value you guys. Well, are my kids then walking away thinking we're ogre parents? Not usually. Their friends are, but usually not them. Because the message they're hearing is we love you, we want to spend time with you, not 
electronics are bad, you may not have them, we have zero tolerance for this. And again, there are nights where we'll pull out a movie and say, hey, let's, let's watch a movie tonight together, and we're breaking our own rule. Why? Because that rule is not about the rule, it's about the principle that we want to build relationship with you. So for that reason, we have that rule about meal times too. And we don't sit there, so here's what I hear teens say all the time. They're absolutely right when they complain about their parents about this. They'll say, my mom and dad say we can't watch TV, but then we don't do anything all night long. Or they say Thursday nights are family night, and so we're not allowed to make uh, plans with friends. We're not allowed to go to anything at school. We're not allowed to be on electronics. But then we sit around bored and we do nothing except maybe watch a TV show that the kids don't even like watching. And they're like, what's the point of that, Julie? I'm going, you're right, what is the point of that? Because they're not really actively engaging in relationship at that moment. So you have to be willing to do that. So it's not enough for us to say no electronics at the dining room table and then we all sit there and don't look at each other and just eat our food. That is just plain torture for everybody involved. Instead, we foster conversation. And who needs to foster the conversation? Is it, does it need to be my kids? No, I need to be the one willing to do that. So, it's as simple as buying table topics, plopping it in the table and saying, all right, somebody pick a table topic. And you know what, I've got teenagers that are too cool for a lot of stuff, but they always ask to pull the table topic. Or we have this weird game, and this is great to do in youth groups, by the way, called Agree, Disagree. And what we do is um, we'll say, agree or disagree, secrets are bad. And we'll let the kids go around and answer that. And they all go around the table and say whether they agree or not. And then they have to give a reason why they agree or not. And it could be a great reason, it could be an awful reason, but they get to give their own reason. And they go all the way around and usually my husband and I are the last ones to weigh in. And if you're a youth group leader, I'd argue be the last one to weigh in. Um, get the final word. Why do you do that? Well, for several reasons. One is I'm saying I care about what you think. Um, I want to hear what my kids think. I want to hear what teenagers are thinking. So I'm going to ask a question that's going to be controversial on purpose because I want to pull out what they're thinking. And I want them to have to explain why. So now I'm teaching they have to have some kind of logical reason um, or they have to perceive it as logical, right? And then they get to hear the benefit of other people weighing into it. And usually they have siblings or they have other teenagers who are agreeing or disagreeing with them and giving a, th a thought or a reason that they never thought of before. So now there's iron sharpening iron, right? I, as the adult, get to hear their perceptions and perspectives. So I get to know how to weigh in later on or weigh in right now if I need to. And it is fostering a, a healthy level of we can all have opinions and all be okay in this home. We don't all have to think alike. I don't have to raise many me's and they all have to say the exact same thing I say. I'm giving freedom to disagree in healthy ways that also shape and inform the way they think about life and reality. And then I give them the freedom to do that too. So they all want to come up with their own agree or disagree. And we've had anything from sex is bad to Spider-Man is the greatest superhero in the world to pizza is better than sushi, to like the craziest dumb stuff that I can't believe we're arguing about at the dining room table. But guess what? If I want them to care about what I think, I better care about what they think. And so giving young people the ability to come up with their own agree and disagree and modeling anything from the really serious conversations to the utter ridiculous conversations to the probable possible scenarios they find themselves in is a really helpful thing to do. 
So here's where you take these principles of scripture and imitating Christ and the rubber hits the road. And you and I are called to say, what does it look like to actively pursue them? What does it look like to foster conversation? I don't know what to say to kids. What do I say to a teenager? Or I hear parents say all the time, I don't know what to say to my kids at the dining room table. It's crickets. I'm like, well, if it's crickets, it's because you are modeling that. And you have to be more winsome and more thoughtful and more proactive and not model. What do you think about what I'm saying? How does that work in youth ministry? Yeah, so we're going back to this. That was a similar question as earlier. What do we do when parents aren't buying into this? Um, you are modeling it in youth ministry. That's the top thing. So this is a little easier than the question, what do you do when your parents aren't teaching their kids about the hard topics? That's a trickier one. But modeling healthy relationships, modeling doing these things in youth ministry is perfect because kids are enjoying talking. They're enjoying engaging with you. And then, if I were you, actually, I'd push back a little with your teens and say, if you like doing this, let's see if you can talk your parents into getting table topics. Or let's see if around a dining room table one night, you're challenging your teens to go home and see if you can get an agree-disagree going on in their home. I'm careful with that, though, because I don't expect teenagers to turn their family around, nor should you and I put the pressure on them that they need to be the adults in a family relationship. However, we are modeling that there can be something far better than being on your cell phones texting each other, right? That you can actually look at each other and laugh and engage and have thoughtful conversation. Um, but this does go back to the idea that uh, ministry needs to be broader and bigger than the teens. It has to reach the family, and the parents have to be targeted in ministry as well um, because they need to be doing these things. They need to be engaging their kids in these things. Yeah, it goes back to this idea of being proactive. You're being proactive with parents. Um, and again, parents are giving up their authority. And so you guys are stepping in. You're being an influence, a really positive influence. That could also be seen as a threat to parents sometimes. And so understanding the nature of that and saying, how do I diffuse that? How do I uh, be proactive in putting these things ahead of time? And then as a church ministry, what do we do when we have made this commitment that this is how we're going to lead and this is how we're going to talk in our ministry? And what do we do when there are families that aren't on board with that? But the more that's talked about from the pulpit, and I just mean from up front, the more that is proactively talked about, the more it's setting you guys up to succeed, the more it's convicting and encouraging families to take a more proactive role, and it's setting the tone for why you guys do what you do. So it's always a really helpful thing to, to be proactive that way. Yeah, so particularly when parents either don't attend the church, they're absent, uninvolved, or you just have the child, what does it look like that you guys are in some ways, you are the primary influence in their life? And to what degree are you committing to that individual child? And to what degree are you providing adults and the body of Christ around them? And that's where I would hope a church could come around, that there are multiple people that could come around and kind of embody what it means to be loving parental influence in a teen's life. Um, so a lot of that's contextualized to your situation, to the child's situation. Um, are they pretty independent? Are they homeless? Are they, un do they have an unchurched family and so it's only the child coming? Um, 
So I would want to know more about the family situation and then try to decide who are wise, godly people that we can help influence this teen. And sometimes another family will be willing to take that teen under their wing too. So you have teenagers in that home who are that child's age and they're engaging each other. So I think there's a lot of liberty to think creatively about how does the body of Christ come around somebody like that and actively engage in their world. Yeah, it's living it out. It's Deuteronomy 6, whether you walk alongside the way, whether you rise, whether you lie down, whether you're eating, whether you're driving to school, wherever you're going, I'm looking to foster those kind of conversations. And those table topics, I mean, there they're are on-the-go conversations. There are little plastic boxes where you can stick them in your car. Like, there's that nauseam amount of question and answer. There's apps you can get on your phone. And I know you're all going to pull your phones out now. But there are apps on your phone that are like that as well. So you don't even have to buy it. You just pull up your app and you find a question. Sometimes they'll even ask, is it for a boy or a girl and what age? Um, and so there are apps that you can bring up that will just give you questions out of the blue. And the car is the perfect place to do it. Again, because they're locked in with no place to go. So when you pull up a question and you just say, hey, guys, what do you think about this? And you're asking a question. They love giving their opinion, especially when they don't feel like they're on the hot seat for anything, that they're just able to give their opinion. And you're engaging them well that way. So I'm glad you brought that up because I don't want to ever give the impression this is a, around the dining room table and parents have to sit down with their kids and eat, though I wish more were. Um, this is a wherever you are, a Deuteronomy 6 kind of principle of engaging young people. It doesn't matter the age. You should be doing that no matter what the age. So I do a lot of parenting conferences, and parents will sometimes say, well, Julie, it's too late. I didn't start when they were five or six or even seven, and they're older now, and I'll say it's never too late. Is it ever too late to show I care about a, ch a young person? Is it ever too late to say I, I want to know you and understand you better? It will be harder, and I always acknowledge that. Yeah, it will be harder, and yeah, they might be resistant and not wanting you right now, but it's never too late to apply any of these principles. That's the beauty of the gospel, um, that it's never too late.